everybody, it's Toby Miller here. I'm in the midst of Sunset Boulevard, specifically in what is it called? Mohawk. Mohawk Bend. Mohawk Bend. And I'm with a, a new friend, as in just met, Ryan Hewling. And Ryan works with PETA, which is People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, a very famous organisation. And we're virtually opposite, we're diagonally opposite, aren't we, Ryan? Your headquarters here in Los Angeles. You're absolutely right. Yeah, we actually just opened uh, the new office here in LA. It's uh, the Bob Barker building, named after uh, legendary game show host Bob Barker, who donated money to help, uh, help us build it. And Bob Barker is really one of the almost founding figures of American television history, isn't he, Ryan? He is. Five decades on, on television, uh, and he's, st he's still going. He's, he's in his 80s now, but he, he still gives very generously to not only PETA, but other animal protection organizations, uh, trying to you know, establish his legacy as somebody who's, who's compassionate towards animals. And he, I think he's a vegan. He is. Uh, long term, and has, is a a great advocate for the health benefits as well as the ethical politics of so being, right? Absolutely. I think he's, he's the model spokesperson for somebody who, who's been on a vegetarian or vegan diet long term because he's, you know, he's sharp as a tack and, and still going strong, yeah. you know, after uh, more than eight decades. Yeah. I wonder if there are any game show clues about animals that he wants to change or has a word about. It'd be interesting to track that, wouldn't it? To see what sorts of topics get addressed and how they're addressed on the program over those decades. Uh, he has a, a surprising level of influence in those kinds of things. I know, I mean, certainly everybody knows who has watched his program from The Price is Right that he always ended the show encouraging watchers to, to have their animals spay, uh, spayed or neutered uh, as a means of combating animal overpopulation. So that was kind of a small uh, step in, in the right direction. Uh, but even outside of that, he also... Uh, uh, prevented fur coats from being given away as prizes on the prices right um, due to his, his opposition to the fur trade um, and even more recently he, he's come out against uh, the prices right for, for giving away a prize um, for a trip to the Calgary Stampede um, up in, in Canada um, which which contributes very heavily to egregious abuses of horses um, and so he, he's, he, he's someone who's, who's not going to let it go you know he's, he's right. someone who cares very deeply about the, uh, the cruelty towards animals and and has made that a focal point of his efforts. And can you explain for those folks not from North America about the Calgary Stampede? Sure. Well, the Calgary Stampede is is basically a, a large festival and rodeo in in uh, northern Canada, and it's something that uh, over the past several years we've seen a, a dramatic increase in the number of animals getting injured as a result of the of the proceedings. So you have animals that are being marched um, through the Calgary streets um, and oftentimes forced to race as part of the rodeo ceremonies, uh, and you have several horses die every single year, um, as is pretty standard within the rodeo industry. Um, the Calgary Stampede being one of the large rodeos in North America, um, it's, it's among the most abusive uh, of any that we, that we take on. And at a political economic level, of course, uh, Calgary is the heartland of the conservative elements in Canadian politics. It's very much the Wild West in the way that people might think of the West of the United States. Uh, historically, uh, it's also a place that's notorious for its environmental despoliation, mm -hmm. uh, the tar sands and so on as sources of oil. So it's very much a place where there are struggles going on over issues of uh, the environment in general, animals in particular, and mineral exploration particularly. Absolutely, and, and it's something that we've seen even residents of Calgary coming out against in recent years. It, it was something that 
for a time was embraced as kind of a, a cultural heritage of their town. Um, but as more and more news stories come out about animals dying on the way to the ceremony or, or as a matter of, of participating in uh, in the stampede, it's, it's not something that people want to support anymore. Want to be so proud of. It's becoming increasingly unpopular yeah. to, to attend the stampede or to support it in front of others. I think one of the things about rural areas is that often people in them see themselves as stewards of the land and there's a great contradiction frequently between that notion of stewardship and the experience of animals and of nature more generally uh, at the hands of those people but the point is it is a contradiction there is an ideological commitment actually to the idea of next generations right for example absolutely and, and i think um you know continued we're doing well how are you good good do you guys want to get anything just well, yet or? can you give me some advice yeah sure okay so i'm a vegetarian okay but i'm not a vegan so i need my hand held on what's tasty fun interesting um okay so let me see um do you eat eggs Great eggs? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Okay, we have. Oh, well. Mm, actually... But I don't mind having. I'm happy to go vegan if you can recommend something. Um, well, our salad days pizza is really, really good and it is uh, vegan. We also have the fungi. That one's vegetarian because it comes with real oh, cheese. Oh, that's fun. It's called the fun guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and fungi? Yeah, yeah it okay. has like. Um, I think it has nine different mushrooms on it. Oh, good God. Yeah. There might be too many. It might be, yeah. There might it's, be too it's, many it's, for a first timer. Yeah, it's kind of a lot of mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have the Holy <laughs> Trinity. Right. We have the farming, which. Um, you can get like the egg from with the real mozzarella, but you can substitute with like the, uh, we have a vegan sausage that you can substitute. So you don't have to have the vegan cheese. Because right. personally, I don't like the vegan cheese. Okay. I like the real cheese. Um, we also have, let's see. I love your fingernails, they're fun. Thank you. <laughs> they are, they're very decorative. They're wonderful. <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah. We have this Mediterranean veggie burger. Amazing, so good. Amazing. We also have the fish and chips. When you say amazing, I think I might go with that. Thing. Yeah, that one's really good. It's a little okay. bit spicy, not too much though. I, I like spicy. So okay, that's, perfect. That's good for me. Ryan, do you have ideas? Uh, I think regular. I'm actually, uh, I'm probably actually just gonna get the uh, the sweet potato fries with the chipotle sauce. Oh yeah, Ooh, that looks nice. Yeah, just get a little a little like. bite to eat. That sounds okay. fun. Just the sweet potato fries. Yes, please. And then, did you want to add any fries to your burger? No, it's okay. okay. Oh, well, maybe I will. Are they really good? Uh, I actually haven't had those before, so you'll have to tell me. Good. Yeah, Are the, they good? The chipotle aioli sauce is amazing. Okay. It just goes really well. There you go. Sounds good. like a way to go. Yeah. You want to add those? Okay. Something to drink? Uh, I'll stick with water, actually. Thank yes, you, though. Just the water. Good. Thank okay. you very much. Sounds good, guys. Thank you. No problem. So there is this contradiction that frequently applies, I think, in terms of the idea of stewardship. Right, absolutely, and, and it's something that we see more and more in the Mountain West uh, of the United States, where you have um, people who have been ranching or or caring for their land uh, for you know generations, but at the same time they're not living in the same world that they were when their great great grandparents started the tradition, um, and they they're having struggles with moving forward with it. Um, so, for example, when we're talking about factory farming, factory farming is taking over the industrial uh, meat production process. And, yeah. and people who you know lived on a family farm that their grandparents might have started 
uh, are no, no longer able to sustain themselves in that business um, because they're being bought out by Tyson or Purdue or Smithfield or, or one of the other uh, multinational corporations multinational, that, yeah. that, that yeah. turn into more industrial agriculture. So One of the stunning things about industrial agriculture in this country also is how protected it is that the myth of the family farm as being supported by the federal government is just that when compared with the uh, corporate welfare that taxpayers like you and me right. give to the very corporations you just mentioned. Right, and it's fascinating, and even within their marketing tactics. I mean, you look at a, a company like Tyson, for example, when you look at their promotional posters or, or even the sides of their trucks um, when they're when they're shipping their products across the country on the side, you only see a barn and a very you know old-timey farm situation that exists nowhere within their production process. I yeah. mean, they are going from factory farm to, to slaughterhouse with no you know chance for an animal to have you know even a, a day in a blade of grass, uh, yeah. and so uh, it's really lying to consumers um, and. And it's our job at PETA to show what happens behind closed doors uh, because most people don't get to see what happens on factory farms or inside of slaughterhouses. And we consider it an important responsibility for people to make informed decisions about what kind of products they want to buy. And right now, American consumers and, and indeed international consumers are not in a position to make an educated decision. No. Can you tell us a bit more about PETA then, just particularly for those people who may not know about it or for those people who get misinformation? Uh, I'm very struck by the, some anti-PETA websites one or two of which I've encountered, mm. uh, as well as, of course, lots of other negativity towards the organization. I'm sure you experience plenty of that. I've rarely seen such hostility, but some of the hostility is very professionally put together. Sure. So if you could clear the record for us a little bit, that might be helpful. Sure. Well, I guess to get started, uh, PETA is the world's largest animal rights organization uh, with more than three million members and supporters worldwide. Um, we have uh, affiliates with... Uh, That's just a few supporters being delivered in that truck. <laughs> They're about to be... The clones about to come out and write some checks. Yes. Uh, so, so uh, as I said, world, world's largest animal rights organization, right. uh, founded in 1980 on the principles that animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, or use for entertainment. Um, so essentially, we're an organization that opposes cruelty to animals in every situation um, and works with society to try and improve situations for animals and eliminate um, their, their use and abuse. Um, and so when you talk about uh, opponents of, of you know, our principles, um, it generally comes in the form of larger industries that profit from the abuse of animals. Um, so you, you know, we're talking about the meat industry, the fur trade, uh, animal experimentation, and all of the businesses that are involved with that, um, and, and even things like circuses, and, and as we talk about rodeos. Um, well, universities, uh, I, thank you very much. I worked for many years at New York University, mm -hmm. which was notorious for its uh, primate experimentation. Right. Uh, and there were many protests at that time, actually, very close to the street where I live. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and it's something that, um, for the longest time, especially when we got started in 1980, uh, was very controversial. Um, it was something that was uh, seen as, as really on the fringe um, at the time that somebody would defend the rights of a chicken, per se. Um, mm. You know, chickens that are being killed for KFC for the longest time. And to many people still today, they are seen as property or just units that can be uh, used and abused and shaped in any way that, that we see fit. Um, but over the course of the past 32 years, uh, you know, opinions on that have changed. Um, and I like to think that part of it, PETA has been a part of that um, in reminding people that all animals feel pain and suffer to, in the same ways and to the same degree as we do. And so we have a responsibility uh, not to treat them as inanimate objects like chairs or tables. Um, and when you come at people with that kind of viewpoint, at first it can be kind of frightening because there are so many different facets of our lives that animals are, are often used in, um, but 
we, we feel it's important to continue to move the middle forward um, and eliminate at least the most egregious abuses first and then move with society to continue reducing our dependence on animals. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you look back at the history of Western philosophy, going back a very long way, there were real struggles over this issue and people like Hume and That's Bentham... Okay. <laughs> Amongst the Anglo tradition, David Hume and Jeremy Bentham extremely aware of the cognitive capacities of animals, certainly within utilitarianism, the idea of suffering as well as joy. That's exactly right, and, and uh, you know, thinkers over the course of history have, have touched on this subject in, in a variety of different ways. We have a, a quote that's etched into our lobby in our Norfolk headquarters uh, from Leonardo da Vinci uh, that, that talks about how uh, there will come a time when people will look upon the slaughter of animals the way that we currently look upon the slaughter of humans. Um, and it was something that at the time would have again been seen as on the fringe and something that just ran contradictory to popular opinion. Um, but it's something that over time people have come to embrace and realize that there's really not that big of a difference between humans and non-humans. Um, and as we learn more and more about non-humans, um, both by observing them in the wild um, and unfortunately through things like animal experimentation, we, we learn about how sensitive they really are and, and in the increased responsibility we have for taking care of them. Sure. So. Um, your particular job is coordinating nationally liaison in the college sector in universities, is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, I'm the manager of college campaigns and outreach. So anything that involves uh, colleges or universities anywhere in North America um, would generally fall in my jurisdiction. So uh, you know, we correspond with more than 300 student organizations across the country, um, providing them with free resources, literature, stickers, DVDs, anything they need in order to raise awareness about animal rights on campus, um, and also directly contributing to campaigns to push for things like additional vegan options and dining halls. Uh, programs like Meatless Mondays to encourage people to reduce their dependence on meat. Um, you know, anything that we can do to make the issue forefront in people's minds um, because college students are, are as always, on the, on the cutting edge of, of any social justice issue and we think animal rights should be no different. I had a question for you about that that's from my very limited purview, uh, which is that on the campus where I teach, sometimes I run courses where I talk about food and I talk about animal rights questions. The students are rarely as exercised by any other topic as they are by this, and frequently in a very hostile way. Not hostile towards me, but hostile towards my misapprehension as they see it. And very keen to explain to me that PETA is a terrorist organization, mm. is a mendacious organization, and so on. And the teaching assistants, who are the people who are really in the front line, as it were, sitting down in smaller groups with the students to talk to them, tell me that the hostility towards vegetarianism, veganism, animal rights questions is much greater than what I experience mm. as the professor. Sure. I, and I think it's it's an interesting dynamic that you see in students that I feel is a combination of two things. Um, for one thing, when you're talking about food, it's a very personal subject for a lot of people. Um, people are grown, you know, even even students who are you know 18 to 22 years old, they've probably spent 18 to 22 years of their life eating meat, eating animal products. It's something that is very much ingrained in them, even though their lives are relatively shorter than people who have been doing it for 50 or 60 years. Uh, but at the same time, it's the only thing that they've ever known, um, and I can empathize with that. I was I was vegetarian, or I was not vegetarian until I turned 19 years old. Um, I ate meat for the first 18 years of my life and didn't think twice about it. Um, so I get where they're coming from with that. Um, but 
at the same time, what we found is that young people in particular are interested in learning more and speaking out against issues once they become educated about them. Um, and so when we, when we introduce the concept of animal rights, when we talk about factory farming, we talk about animals having their throats slit while they're still fully conscious when killed for McNuggets, um, it's not something that students are comfortable with. Um, they've just never really been approached with that kind of information before. Um, and so I think McNuggets are chicken bits sold uh, by McDonald's, is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. So McDonald's products, fast food products in particular, which are heavily, heavily marketed towards college students and young people in general, um, tend to come from incredibly abusive situations towards animals. And so um, at, at, on one side of it, I think it's a personal defense mechanism that students might set up to say, you're telling me that I've been wrong for my entire life, um, which is something that I, I can understand why they would have that concern. The, the more nefarious side of it um, comes from the influence of big business and people who profit from the abuse of animals. Um, so not only do you have multi-billion dollar campaigns from companies like McDonald's or, or Burger King or many other companies that, that not only target consumers and try and encourage them that their products are, are cheap and affordable and delicious, um, but on top of that, uh, that they also particularly target young people and intentionally put re uh, restaurants right on the, on the corner of uh, college campuses or sometimes right in the middle of the student center. Uh, many student centers actually have McDonald's or Taco Bell or other locations directly in their student center to target to that demographic. So they're very heavily targeted to them. The other more devious side of the fast food industry is that they also fund campaigns against animal rights organizations and, and health advocates and people who speak out against them. Um, so we see this uh, in the form of various front groups. There's uh, one in particular called the Center for Consumer Freedom, um, which is a very mis misleading they, name. That's just the one I was thinking about yes. because I visited their website and I was astonished at how well put together it was. It was clearly a front organization right. and claiming that Peter murdered thousands of dogs and cats every year. Right. It, it, it's, a, it's a very misleading website at the very least, and, it, and it's put together um, by an, a front organization um, that is supported by the meat industry, dairy industry, alcohol and tobacco industries, um, and they take on a wide variety of different nonprofit organizations, including not only PETA, but Humane Society of the United States, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, any organizations that that talk to people about uh, you know, awareness-raising issues, whether it's animal rights or, or health issues, um, that in some way contribute to the to the profit uh, you know declines of different companies that support them and so thank you very much PETA has come into their ire uh, because of course we speak out against any use of animals um, which includes a wide range of industries so there's a lot of people who make make money from the abuse from the abuses that we speak out against that they want to fund organizations to to try and discredit us um, and so they've been unsuccessful thankfully um, in the sense that uh, in the time that they've been doing their campaigns our membership only increases um, our, our celebrity supporters and, and awareness continues to grow every single year um, and so in that sense they are failing but we do come across people from time to time like yourself who were just googling on the internet for PETA and happened to come on to these very misleading websites that try and discredit our organization um, and so it can be frustrating but at the same time um, you know we know that we're in the right and we know that if people uh, take the time to think about the issues they'll end up falling on our side. Sure well and it's wonderful to hear your optimism in that because it's nice to think of rationality as winning the day. It's also, of course, important, as you say, to think about questions of empathy. And one of the things that strikes me about Peter is that whereas many activist organizations feel as though they're wagging their fingers at you and are denying you pleasure, Peter really focuses on pleasure the pleasure of animals and the pleasure of people. Mm -hmm. But 
tries to have a wink and a nudge and a smile about what it does, even though many of the stories it's telling are so frightening. Right. It's it, it's a dynamic that we that we intentionally do try to strike because we realize that um, over time we've had to adapt our tactics to adjust to what society is looking for, um, and so I, I think one of the ways that we've been so successful is the fact that we don't try to work against the grain. Um, we realize that people like very basic instinctual things. Um, for example, nudity and sex come up all the time. Um, if you look if you look at the most popular websites on the internet, they are consistently the ones that have either you know porn or other adult content content on them, um, and, you know, the best-selling movies tend to be the ones that have, you know, the, the very attractive people on the front, um, and so we've been able to tap into that while still carrying a very serious message, um, because we know that that's a medium that people are comfortable receiving information through. Um, so something going back to, for example, our I'd Rather Go Naked Than Wear Fur campaign, um, which is something that we started in, in the late 80s and continues through today, um, having celebrities um, in various states of, of undress um, with the slogan, I'd rather go naked than wear fur. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of, as you say, a wink and a nod way to get people to realize fur is no longer fashionable. This celebrity that you may admire and as a fashion icon speaks out against it, but they're doing it in kind of a fun, lighthearted way because that's what we know yeah, people yeah. are looking for. That's right, and I suspect that's how I first heard of Peter. Uh, who would be some of the celebrities that people might have seen? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Here thank you come. very much. <laughs> thank you. No problem. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Wow, look no at this. Oh. Cheers. Mm. It's tasty. Good. Who'd be some uh, of the so celebs that we some of the celebrities? Pamela uh, Stevenson, I think, would be one. Was she uh, in Pamela the... Anderson? Pamela Anderson, sorry. Pamela Anderson, yes. Uh, Pamela Anderson has contributed to the campaign, yeah. absolutely, from oh, Baywatch, yeah. Baywatch fame. Um, and uh, uh, Ava Mendez. Another uh, Canadian. We mentioned Canada. She's a Canadian. Pamela yes, Anderson. yep. Pamela Anderson is from, uh, I believe, Vancouver originally. Um, so... Uh, and we've also had uh, Ava Mendez, uh, fam famous actor here in the United States and internationally. Um, uh, even even bands like the Go Go's way back in the day in the in the, the late 1980s were actually the first uh, first band and artist uh, to contribute to the campaign. So it really. It, it covers a very broad range of people, and um, we actually receive emails from celebrities uh, all the time asking if they can be part of the campaign because it's it's one of those issues that's seen as non-threatening. It's something that it's it's a fun approach that their fans won't take back be taken aback by. Um, whereas if they had walked up to their fans and say, you know, shame on you for wearing fur, and you know, kind of the more negative tones, um, they might get a more hostile reaction. Whereas this is more fun and lighthearted. Nowadays, the talent agencies that manage Celebrities in the United States include a non-government organization's consultant, somebody who'll be on the company dime, to advise which causes celebrities should associate themselves with. Right. And often this relates to their current status in the various industries where they make their money as to how many risks they can take. Right. It's it's something that's very carefully coordinated, and um, you know we, we we're thrilled to be included on that list of, of organizations that chair, that uh, celebrities often want to work for because. As, as I'm sure everybody can imagine, when you have uh, an actress like Am uh, Pamela Anderson contributing to a campaign, not only is the media obsessed with it, I mean, every, every media outlet wants to cover Pamela Anderson anyways, so the fact that she's doing an advertisement naked, and we get to publicize that to, you know, e-television and, uh, you know, Hollywood Reporter and all the other media outlets that would cover celebrity gossip, um, now it's being splashed all over the internet as well. 
um, we're able to reach tens of millions of people with an advertisement that, at, at the end of the day, didn't cost us anything to run. Now, the reason I contacted you guys and asked if I could meet with somebody here in L.A., and I'm very grateful to you, Ryan, for doing that, and to the communications department of Peter, I guess, back in Virginia, for putting us in contact, was that, yet again, uh, the Super Bowl of football, the National Football League, which occurred last weekend, saw the television networks covering the event, refusing to carry Peter commercials. And this has happened quite often. It has. Uh, why does this... So I was shocked by that, even though I am shocked every year. Right. Why does this censorship occur? Well, it's, it's increasingly curious, actually, the explanations that the networks will provide when we try to submit advertisements, um, because, of course, we submit them the same way that any company would. Uh, we, you know, we submit them by the deadlines requested. We offer to pay the full amount um, in order to run them, because we know the Super Bowl has you know, the largest viewership of any program throughout the entire year, at least here in the U.S., uh, and so we know it's a good spot for us to be, um, but we want to do an advertisement that we know is going to be edgy and fit within... The, the other commercials that are going to be run during the, during the show. So we spend a great deal of time watching other Super Bowl commercials and seeing what kinds of things they're going to be running. So you see fast food commercials with you know women uh, strolled out on the front of a, a you know hot rod car um, eating a juicy burger, um, and this is the kind of thing that tends to increase sales <laughs> for that particular company. And so we said, okay, well why don't we do the same thing, um, but for a vegetarian or vegan diet? And so we we tried to run an ad last year uh, during the Super Bowl where we had uh, 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 models and, and, and vegetarian actresses um, playing around with vegetables. Um, and it was a very kind of sexy, well-produced video. No kidding. Um, it, was, it was designed by actually a director of, of, of music videos, um, somebody who has a lot of experience working with this kind of content. And so we spent a great deal of time putting together an ad that we thought would be a perfect fit for the Super Bowl and just what people are looking for. Uh, only to find out when we submitted it that uh, they, they had chosen to reject it because they didn't they, they didn't think it would fit within the decency standards of the Super Bowl air uh, airtime and so that can be frustrating in one sense uh, because we really see a, a double standard in terms of what uh, what conduct means um, for different companies that are applying. Um, fast food companies seem to have no trouble running these kinds of ads when it's meat that they're pushing, but when we're pushing vegetables and a healthier lifestyle, um, it's something that is seen as more threatening and they, and they don't want to air it. Um, but at the same time, just by generating that controversy, um, we've been able to get a tremendous amount of viewership online. Um, and, and many of the, the same uh, you know, late-night TV shows where we might have tried to run the ad uh, will end up showing it for free um, because it's such a controversy now. So we see you know, shows like Jimmy Kimmel, for example, um, not only ran our sexy ad, but they also made a parody of it, um, which they identified as being for the meat industry. Um, and so it had a very fat, overweight guy uh, in a Speedo eating a hamburger. Um, so, you know, kind of, it, it, it puts us really into the mainstream of television without us having to run the actual paid ad. Um, so it ends up working working in our favor either way. Great irony. Jimmy Kimmel is, as Ryan's just a late night television host for a, a hybrid genre that we have here that is similar to what you can get in many parts of the world, where it's part stand-up comedy, part music, part interviews with celebrities to promote their latest product and part political commentary. That's exactly right. And um, it's, it's, it's one of those areas of television that is very hotly desired amongst various different companies. And if we were to run an ad, we would want to run it during that kind of time frame because that's exactly where 
our audience is going to be watching, the young people in particular, college students, would be watching during a late night comedy show. Um, but but we'd end up not having to pay for it um, because just by running, trying to run the ad and getting rejected, we're able to get international press attention and they end up... Very nice. Thank you for the recognition. Excellent. Thank you. And they end up running the ad for free um, as part of as part of their broadcast. So um, it, it has worked in our favor thus far. Though we do hope that one day the uh, the standards will will come around and they'll actually admit an ad that, that is pro vegetarian. Now, a question about the, this very sexual representation of these women. Uh, for me, as a watcher, the big difference between these commercials and the use of the women in the fast food commercials is that in the latter. Their bodies are there for the presumed delectation of the male viewer, the straight male viewer. In your ads, it's very much the woman is there for her own sexual pleasure, which these vegetables might form part of. Nevertheless, you are still, aren't you, buying into the conventions of, of sexism with these commercials, or how do you, how do you see that? Uh, I see it as us just reacting to what society is looking for, um, and I think it kind of goes back to that idea that, you know, what it, what are the most popular programs, um, what are the most popular movies that are available? They tend to be ones that have kind of racy themes, um, and so if, for example, society adapted to a point where uh, people were looking for a more academic, refined approach in in advertisements, we would be the first ones in line to do that. Um, and we would change our strategy to reflect what society is looking for. Um, but as long as people continue to look for the kind of uh, more juvenile advertisements, um, we realize that that's where people are getting their messages from, both from fast food companies and from organizations like us, and we have to fit within what they're comfortable with. Um, and in terms of nudity being associated with sexism, um, I, I would point to the fact that we, we've actually done, <coughs> excuse me, um, we've done advertisements with both men and women, um, a, a wide variety of ads. Um, we, we've, we've done advertisements with, uh, with famous comedians like David Cross, um, actually did an I'd rather go naked than wear fur advertisement for us, um, it, you know, wear, wearing next to nothing. Um, even I, I myself have, have participated in, in naked or semi-naked campaigns before. Um, we have a, a fun uh, alternative to the running of the bulls, which is, of course, uh, a le legendary tradition in, in uh, Pamplona, um, where, where bulls are often uh, either gored or, or killed as a result. Um, we proposed a, a more humane alternative called the running of the nudes. Um, which, <laughs> Where, running of the nudes. Running of the nudes, where uh, we have you know 500, 600 naked people in Pavlona, Spain, that, that run down the streets in kind of a fun revelry uh, the day before the running of the bulls um, to show people that you can have a kind of wild and crazy time uh, without having to contribute to the abuse of animals. Um, and I, I myself have participated in that, and I, I don't feel exploited by doing that. I, I, I see it as a way um, to show people that you can have a, you know an edgy and uh, you know seemingly risque activity um, without having to torture animals in the process. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily associate nudity with, with sexism in any way. I, I think it's it's up to the people who are doing it um, to make that decision. And, and the people who, of course, contribute to our I'd rather go naked than wear fur campaigns or any other ads that PETA does are, are willing volunteers and people who want to use their bodies as a political weapon. Absolutely. Now, getting back to campus work, Ryan, if I could, mm -hmm. Do you have different strategies for different kinds of colleges? I'm thinking of working class ones, minority ones, 
evangelical, religious ones, Catholic ones, big state schools? I mean, is it one size fits all, or do you vary things? Uh, we do vary things. Um, we try to look at where the school is currently, especially when it comes to food options, um, and, and propose very reasonable improvements that they could make. Um, and so, when you're talking about the more progressive schools that have very advanced vegetarian and vegan options on the dining halls, um, we tend to not push them for things that they already have, um, and instead we try and keep them moving the middle forward and, and pushing for things like Meatless Mondays options, um, where one dining hall will go completely vegetarian one day a week, as, a, as an intro step to, to getting more and more students introduced to vegetarian food. Um, but when it comes to schools that you know, may be more rural or haven't really been introduced to vegetarian and vegan food very often, we try to propose things that are very basic. So saying, for example, that some of your students are vegetarian or vegan, they are often required to buy a dining plan so that they're eating in the, the you know, campus cafeterias, um, but they're not able to eat three square meals a day as a vegetarian or vegan because those options are not provided. Um, and saying this is as much you know, an animal rights issue as it is a student's rights issue. Students should have the option to eat three square meals a day if they're going to be paying the same amount as everybody else. Um, and so we found that to be a very compelling argument to a lot of schools who say we're really not doing our job if we don't provide adequate nutritional options to people who ha may have a different dietary preference. Um, and so we do try and approach things in a different way. Um, just this past weekend, actually, I tabled uh, and uh, I had a, an information table set up uh, at the Los Angeles Convention Center here in town um, because uh, it was uh, an event called the Black College Expo, um, which is uh, about 15,000 students um, who come to this event um, with the hopes of, of being admitted to a historically black college or university in the U.S. Um, so schools that, that have historically been, been African Americans. Um, and so, you know, with that particular campaign, um, we tried to look at the event and say, you know, what, what's going to be the best campaign for us to work on with this, with this audience coming in? And we realized that the primary sponsor of the event was McDonald's. <laughs> that McDonald's was, was the primary funder of, the, of this convention. And we said, well, if we're going to have a booth there, we have to talk about McDonald's. Um, because we have to, you know, at least combat the messaging that they're no doubt going to have at this event, encouraging people to go to their chain. Um, and so we decided to go, go with our McCruelty campaign. Um, we handed out thousands and thousands of anti-McDonald's stickers at a McDonald's-sponsored event um, to try and combat uh, their messaging and, and encourage students to think more conscientiously about the decisions that they make and, and about the foods that they want to support. Wonderful. Um, Do you get college administrations being very defensive normally? Are they open? How would you describe them in general? Um, well, in, in the first they, in the first case, they are generally defensive only because they don't like to be ever told that they're not doing their job properly. Um, and so, dining staff administrators um, are often resistant to change until they see proof that it's something that students really want. Um, and at, at that point, their main responsibility is to respond to student demand. So if students are indicating that this is where the demand lies, they have no choice but to follow it. Otherwise, then they are really not doing their job. And so as a way for us to combat that, uh, what we've been doing is we actually have a, a team called a campus outreach crew for PETA. It's four people um, that travel from college campus to college campus all throughout the year. And they actually work alongside students to gather petition signatures in support of additional vegan options on campus. And so, uh, on average, they gather more than 800 signatures every single day uh, on a college campus. So, for example, we're actually going to be going to UC Riverside here in California uh, next week 
uh, and over the course of two days, we expect to gather more than 1,600 petition signatures in support of additional vegan options on campus. Um, and then we leave those petition signatures with the students that we work with at the end of the campaign so that they can then deliver them to their university. Um, so that's a way that we've been able to show the university is that it is something that students support when they're approached with the idea of having more vegetarian and vegan foods. Even meat eaters are willing to get behind it because they realize it's, it's a healthier, more environmentally friendly choice. It's definitely the day for street sweeping, <laughs> bread delivery, you name it. Well, I'll process our conversation tonight and get it all through the various systems to make it available and urge uh, students to check you guys out when you're there next week because uh, University of California Riverside is where I work. Do you encounter much resistance from students, from student groups in particular? Any particular types? Um, not generally, actually. What we, I, I suppose the only only organizations that we've had resistance from are particularly in agriculture heavy, heavy schools. Um, so in the Midwest of the United States, you have a lot of uh, what are called land-grant institutions. So universities that are, that are based in agriculture, they have a lot of future farming programs. And so you have a lot of young people who are intending to go, in, go into animal agriculture. Um, raising and, and killing animals for food. And so when you have young people who are destined for that career, um, it, it takes that original defensiveness that we had talked about where you're telling people that they've made the wrong choice um, in, their, in their diet up until, up until now. Um, <laughs> we got another siren going on here in the background. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's hard enough to tell people that they may have been choosing the wrong foods uh, up until now, but you throw in the fact that maybe they want to go into this business and actually make a living uh, raising and killing animals for food. That's something that, you know, adds, adds to the level of defensiveness that somebody can have. And so I suppose the only, the only students that we've encountered any resistance with are the future farmers. Uh, <laughs> the future farmers um, and people who are, who are destined for, for factory farming. And you know, people that we really have a long way to go before they'll they'll get on our side, but we, we still give them a try. What about unions working in the food industry? They tend not to be uh, resistant to our message, actually, and, and and I say that because they realize that a job is a job, and and as long as they're having safe working conditions and and being provided adequate benefits, they don't particularly care to work in animal agriculture. Um, you know, businesses where people are, are working in slaughterhouses tend to be the lowest quality jobs in the United States. Um, there's a, a very high um, not only disease rate but also uh, injuries that people face when they're working in slaughterhouses. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in the country. Um, and so people would be thrilled if the market were to shift and, people, and, pe and it is increasingly shifting towards vegetarian and vegan options which doesn't mean that people aren't eating, it means they're eating different foods. Um, it means that there are be going, to be going, going to need to be more people working in raising crops um, for corn and soy and, and various other products that are needed to make vegetarian and vegan options and to meet that new demand. Um, and so it's not a matter, it, it, you know, as in any dynamic economy, anytime an industry rises or falls, other industries will rise and fall as a result. Sure. So as meat, sure. as meat production decreases, more and more of those jobs will go to other more humane uh, industries and people who had those secure jobs in the meat industry can shift over to the new business. And the fact is, there are real trends in the United States in the last two or three years away from meat consumption. 
uh, sadly, of course, it's increasing in countries where there is a burgeoning middle class because there is a tendency to associate eating meat with socioeconomic status. But really, people in this country are eating less and less meat. They still eat more of it than anybody else, but the trend is in the other direction. That's exactly right, and, and for the longest time it wasn't, so this is very encouraging news. Um, for the longest time, people were uh, ingesting more and more animals at, uh, as a result of their diet, and things like industrial agriculture and, fa and uh, fast food had a lot to do with that. Starting in the 1970s, we saw a dramatic spike in, in the number of animals being killed for food. Uh, here in the United States, 28 billion animals, billion with a B, <laughs> are, are killed for food every single year um, just, to, just to feed Americans. Um, and so. Thankfully, that number is starting to turn downwards, um, and people are, are cho increasingly choosing non-animal dishes, um, whether for animal rights reasons or for environmental reasons uh, or for uh, you know, their own health. They, they want to reduce their level of cholesterol and saturated fat that they intake, and, and vegetarian options are a way to go for that. Now, we've talked a lot about food. When you're in colleges, do you look at some of the other issues that Peter is concerned with? And one that interests me a lot is entertainment. Sure. Absolutely. It, it is something that we work on. Um, I, 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 it's not something that I work on directly, which is why I probably talk about it less, but we do have uh, what, what are called animal and entertainment specialists at PETA uh, who work specifically on that issue. Um, so you see animals being used uh, in sporting events, for example, um, people using uh, live animal mascots. Um, for the longest time, uh, Louisiana State University here in the United States uh, had a live tiger um, that they would cart out during all the sporting events um, for the football games. And they, they had a cage for the tiger that they would wheel, wheel him in and out um, as a means of trying to get the, the crowd riled up. Um, but clearly there's no concern for the welfare of animals in that circumstance. Um, they live purely as a prop um, to be wheeled in and out as if they were you know, a, a table or a chair like we talked about. Um, they don't take into consideration the fact that these animals would roam hundreds of miles in the wild um, and yet they're being denied everything that is natural and important to them um, and forced to live in a concrete box for their entire lives. Um, and so, the, you know, the tide is starting to change on this, and we're and we're seeing more and more schools turning away from animal-based entertainment. Uh, things like circuses are, are their ticket sales continue to plummet. Another bottle of water. Uh, yeah, I think that would be great. Okay. Thank you. Well, are you still enjoying your fries? Oh, uh, I'm still enjoying them. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Talking too much. <laughs> I'm going to get you guys another bottle. Oh, thank you. Um, but uh, yes, things like circuses and, and animals and entertainment is on the is is on the way down um, because people realize that these animals have innate needs. Um, they're not they're not naturally in situations where they can be performing for people. Um, you see elephants in circuses, for example, standing on their hind legs um, and and trumpeting as if this is something that they do in the wild. I've never seen a single nature documentary of animals in <laughs> in their natural habitat ever standing on their hind legs in this way. Um, it's something that they only do because they're beaten into submission behind the scenes, um, and trainers force them to perform at, or, or risk punishment. Um, and that's something that, that society is becoming increasingly aware of. When you go to college campuses, I assume that some of the high-profile cases and campaigns of Peter come up as topics. Um, two, the three that I'm thinking of right now, uh, one would be to do with the horse racing industry, mm -hmm. uh, an appalling industry. Uh, a related one would be a new home box office television series that's just started here with Dustin Hoffman, where Peter's involved with criticisms of the way in which animals are treated. And then the third would be the recent court case over particular whale, kinds of whales and 
uh, trying to represent their interest in court. Right. That's exactly right. And, and uh, I suppose I'll, I'll go backwards in the order of what you just said, yeah. that uh, the SeaWorld case, um, which is the one you're referring to, yeah. um, actually just, just really kicked off in a big way this week um, in that uh, we, were, uh, we actually had our PETA lawyers um, speaking uh, in a San Diego courthouse here in California um, and, and making the case um, that what SeaWorld, uh, which is a, a, an amusement park here in the United States that, that keeps captive orca whales um, for entertainment purposes and forces them to perform um, for, for attendees, um, is keeping these animals in involuntary, uh, involuntary servitude um, in the same way that, that humans were oppressed um, through slavery here in the United States for, for far too long. Um, and really bringing up the fact that these animals should have constitutional protection in the same way that humans already do, and indeed corporations and, and various other units yes, of society do Co as well. Corporations are people in the United States. Yes, and, and so we, we've already gone to that point in the legal system where we've extended rights beyond the limit of just human beings, um, and so now we feel it's the time that because we know that orcas in particular are very intelligent creatures, um, you know, they're, they're far more intelligent than people often give them credit for, and yet in a case like SeaWorld, they're being kept in what is, to them, the equivalent of the, uh, the size of a bathtub for their entire lives. Um, they're barely allowed to turn around, um, let alone swim miles a day like they would in the wild. Um, and so we're forcing animals to perform against their will um, and, and doing so under, under threat of punishment. Um, that, to me, strikes exactly the same mindset as uh, the might-makes-right philosophy that allowed slavery to, to exist for so long. Yes, and of course, part of that was the notion of the dehumanizing of persons. That's exactly right. And, and you, you see a lot of uh, very... Uh, concerning similarities and parallels between the abuse that humans have inflicted on each other throughout history and the abuses that we currently inflict on animals. Um, and, and, you know, the same mindset that you are less than me, um, your suffering does not matter because I stand to benefit from it. Um, this is the same kind of mentality that was used to defend slavery for the longest time. Um, and, you know, many of the same arguments that were being made then are being made now by lawyers for SeaWorld and, and for various other companies that, that profit from the abuse of animals. Um, and so the same thing, uh, t the same kind of mindset, I guess, extends to the other two cases that you were talking about, where animals that are used in entertainment are never willing participants, um, especially when we're talking about exotic animals, whether they're, you know, chimpanzees um, that are used in, in commercials far too often here in the United States, um, certainly lions, tigers, elephants, uh, any animals that are used um, for, uh, for a novelty reason. Um, tend to be uh, often beaten or abused behind the scenes in order to force them to perform. Um, and so we see the same thing in television and, and movies. Uh, anytime that wild animals are being used, um, there's some sort of abuse happening behind the scenes. Um, but thankfully, more and more uh, filmmakers and, and TV producers are, are shifting away from that. Um, there was a, a really great film last year in the United States here um, called Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Um, which uh, the, the theme of the movie talks about animals being used against their will to begin with, and the director thought it really doesn't make sense to use live animals in this movie when the theme is so staunchly against their exploitation. Um, and he, he drew that connection, and we're really glad that he did, um, and he ended up uh, using uh, graphic imagery to make it look like they were computer-generated uh, monkeys and apes in the film, um, when in fact they weren't actually using live animals at all. Um, and many moviegoers were tricked into thinking that they, there actually were live animals in this movie, and they were impressed to find out that you can use that kind of technology and not have to exploit animals for your benefit. Yes, I think it was only in the last few years that the Hollywood home for chimps was closed down. 
as more and more animatrons were used and also these graphic techniques that you mentioned. Yeah. And simulate. It, it and you know it's it's going to be a situation I feel where when you look at um, very uncomfortable parts of our history here in the United States. So, for example, you look at uh, something like blackface, um, where, where uh, for people who are unfamiliar with that term, you know, having white actors put on makeup to look as though they were African American because they didn't want to use African Americans in the commercial. Um, this kind of very grotesque uh, imagery. I feel like that's going to be the very same mindset when we look at these, these kinds of commercials that are that are dying out now but still do exist, unfortunately, um, where you use chimpanzees against their will in a commercial. Um, you know, we're, we're going to look 20, 30, 50 years you know, down the line from now, we're going to look at those and say, that chimpanzee really didn't want to be there, did they? Um, they? We know now, we know better, we know that we shouldn't use chimpanzees for our own amusement um, when they are highly intelligent creatures that, you know, for their own reasons, shouldn't have to be used for animal animal pursuits. And what about the entire sport of horse racing? Sure, I mean, the, the entire sport of horse racing is something that, uh, on its face, is, is cruel. Uh, we're, we're using and exploiting animals purely for profit, um, in, in that case. Uh, though thankfully we're starting to see some improvements in the industry um, which were uh, fought tooth and nail um, by the people involved in the business. Um, so for example we actually just uh, had an exciting announcement yesterday that many of the jockey clubs um, after years of persuading from PETA um, are starting to invest some of their profits in uh, retirement homes and sanctuaries for horses once they are done being used by the industry. Um, certainly we would prefer that they not be used at all uh, because horses have better things to do than you know run around in circles while people bet on them. And um, whip them. And whip them. And, and, and kick them. Absolutely. And, and the, the abuses are inherent in that industry. Um, there's no way to, to make an animal run at that kind of speed without some sort of abuse to force them to do it. Um, and so that cruelty still exists. But at the same time, we're seeing incremental improvement um, to lessen their suffering, which is something that PETA has fought long and hard for. Um, and, and we're hoping that this will start to, to the decay of the horse slaughter industry, which is very much tied to horse racing. Um, you have a lot of spent horses that are, that are done, done for in the industry that can no longer run at the speeds that the, the jockeys want them to. And for the longest time, they've just been sent to slaughter or often trucked thousands of miles across the country and then slaughtered. Um, and so the fact that uh, they're starting to make some improvements in reducing their suffering by at least putting them out to pasture and letting them live the rest of their lives in, in peace and quiet um, is a step in the right direction. Yeah. There are many very moving stories here to be told. You guys have an excellent website. I had a look this morning at your annual report for 2011, your financials, and so forth, and it seems to me there's an attempt to be very open about these things, uh, but also to tug on the heartstrings. And I think it's there are two elements that strike me as being very effective, or three elements strike me as being very effective about how you guys function. One is drawing on empathy. Uh, the other is drawing on humour. And then the third is educating people about the history of the objects in front of them. Anything else? I, I think we're all set, actually. Just I'm, I'm going to finish these off. But, do you want to uh, check any desserts or anything? Uh, I, I'm all set, actually. Just thank a check, you. thank you. Uh, and the third thing, after empathy and humour, is history. Uh, trying to bring to us a sense of the history of the food we eat, the 
television programs we watch, the sporting events that we participate in, in terms of the labour of animals, the creativity of animals and the objectification of animals that went into those moments, texts, performances, meals. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. We, I, I see it as our role to um, provide a fuller perspective on what exactly is involved in producing a final product. Um, so, like we talked about, you know, you go to the fast food restaurant or, or the grocery store and you see the prepackaged chicken or the or the chicken McNuggets at McDonald's, um, and you the immediate assumption is that that's all there is. There there are just chicken McNuggets, and I'm going to eat them. Um, Thank you but we consider it our responsibility to paint a, a, a colorful picture of how those uh, chicken McNuggets came to be and what animals suffered in order to produce that product um, so that people can, again, make a more educated decision, a more informed decision about what kind of products they want to buy and which they don't. Um, same thing goes with something like commercials, like we were talking about in animals used in entertainment. You only see that 30-second snapshot of, uh, you know, a chimpanzee in a uh, career builder Super Bowl ad. Um, you know, you see a boardroom full of, of chimpanzees, uh, but you don't see them being beaten with metal rods behind the scene, but just before the camera clicked on. Um, you don't see the animals that are that are left in decrepit uh, cages for the rest of their lives after that commercial was already filmed. Um, you know, you don't see on either sides of the equation, and we consider it our responsibility to paint people the full picture because what we what we found is that when they do see what happens to animals both before and after um, the original snapshot, uh, they're willing to empathize with animals. They understand that there's something inherently wrong with using and abusing animals in that way, and they end up wanting to join us in fighting against it. And how do you go about the research to uncover that history? Uh, well, we go through research in a, in a wide variety of ways, but most prominently in undercover investigations. Um, so we have uh, PETA staff members who will uh, gain employment at various different companies, whether it's a factory farm or a slaughterhouse or an animal experimentation laboratory or, or any place where animals are being abused. Um, we try to get ourselves in there with hidden cameras and, and microphones um, to, show, to show people what happens behind the scenes so they, they can again make those decisions. Um, it's not an easy business. Um, it's something that is incredibly draining for people who care about animals. Um, to, have to, to have to go in and, and work in a slaughterhouse for six months. Um, you know, most people who, who uh, might not even consider themselves animal rights activists don't want to spend their days slitting the throats of cows. Um, but to do it as somebody who is an animal rights activist and who cares about the suffering of animals makes it ten times more challenging. Um, and yet they know that it's important to do it because they want to bring that footage out. Um, because the fast food companies aren't going to do it, the meat producers aren't going to show you. Um, there's a famous Paul McCartney quote, uh, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarian. Um, it's that same kind of idea that if anybody from the outside world were seeing what's happening inside of these windowless buildings, they would make the same decision that many PETA supporters have to relieve meat off of their plates forever. Right. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us in the pod. It was terrific to meet you. And uh, I hope that we can chat again sometime as other PETA campaigns take off. It would be my pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. Uh, people who, who want to find out more uh, can always visit our website. It's just PETA.org. PETA.org. That's P-E-T-A dot O-R-G.